Welcome to Story Radio, the podcast for writers, readers and lovers of short stories everywhere. Today we are listening to The Invisibles by Tatum Anderson. I'm kicking my suitcase along a tunnel under St Thomas's Hospital, one bleak January night. It's the pessimist month when a blanket of relentless fog has settled everywhere. The cabbie dropped me off at the designated drop-off area, five floors away from where I'm sleeping tonight. I can't pull my tiny suitcase or lift it, so it stands upright on its wheels, and I can kick it a few yards, catch up with it, and kick it again. I won't look up. If I can't see the people who walk past me, kicking my suitcase, then they can't see me. I have a boiling anger by the time a soft voice, from above my eye level, asks if I'd like some help. I'm about to decline, politely, but I look up and see a giant man, dishevelled and musty. He's a rough sleeper, I see that instantly. He smiles and wheels my suitcase effortlessly, then up the stairs and to the door of the building. I thank him again and again. He says it's nothing, nods and heads back the way he came. It's the next morning. The branches of a tree in the concrete planter outside the pain management services look like clawed hands. I'm an inpatient at St Thomas's for a month. The Houses of Parliament are opposite, across the silty grey syrup that is the Thames. Some people expect a ward at pain management services, but it has no hospital beds, drips, beeps or wires. It's made of carpeted classrooms, offices, and a warm sitting room that's desperately trying to be homely. With grey sofas and uplighting, it almost succeeds. Except there are gaps in the polystyrene ceiling that betray the wires and pipes and infrastructure of the hospital surrounding me. When I enter the sitting room, Natalie... Another patient is already there. She's 24, dressed in skinny jeans and ankle boots with furry tops. Beside her sits a walking stick that, unlike those pensioner brown ones, is decorated with flowers. It's as much part of her as the glasses on her nose and her dyed red hair. She's sitting, with one leg outstretched, at a long table. She tells me to be careful, not to brush past it. It burns with a fiery pain that is gradually eating her leg, but no one in medical science understands. They even call it complex regional pain syndrome, a name so short of its true impact. Her leg is like a precious log. To touch it is agony. I sit down and watch Nicola at the coffee machine. She swears as the plastic stirrer bends half-melted through her tea and carries the plastic cup to the table where we're sitting. She takes jagged footsteps, as if tiptoeing on red-hot coals, slicing the air with her tongue at each step. She has fibromyalgia. Pain roams around her body. Today it's in her feet, but sometimes it's in her hands and they blotch purple. When it's in her head, it's the mother of all migraines, she explains. She sits down opposite me and begins fiddling with her phone. 
Behind her, there's a conservatory with a crop of dreary-looking pot plants. I do not make tea. I cannot carry the cup. Her voice is fag-husky when she speaks. Jordan never turned up at school. God, she's going to get excluded, she says. She talks about her family a lot. Jordan was named after that Jordan, the one who went back to her real name when she stopped modelling. Her dad just loved Katie Price. A large woman in her early fifties staggers in. She slants on her stick with a coffee in her free hand. Then, as if weighed down by a sack of lead, she collapses in a chair, wincing. Me all right, Kim? I say. There's a murmured response. She must have only just fallen asleep, after a night wide awake, and didn't hear the din of alarm set to wake her up. I know, because she warned me when I met her last night, in the hospital flat we're sharing. I'm here because my arms screech with a pain that feels like fire when I use them. I cannot shop, or drive, or write, or type, or dress, or wash, or cook. I cannot feed my own child. I cannot pick her up. I have been referred from the pain clinic next door, where the floors shine and screens flash, calling patients for pre-op assessments. There are posters of stopwatches that say, Go! That's where the cures are, the surgeons, injections and operations. Anyone they can't fix is sent here. Musicians who can no longer play, dancers who can no longer dance, CEOs driven so hard they can only lie on their beds staring at the ceiling. A perky private school sportsmaster brought low by a scything spine so crumpled onto two sticks he's unrecognisable even to himself. In a 12-year journey that's taken me to rheumatologists, orthopaedic surgeons, osteopaths and sports physios and hand physios, I've stumped them all. I've tried everything in between, from trigger point therapy to remedial massage, injections in my shoulder muscles to acupressure, hot rocks to Reiki. Nothing has worked. Joe, the occupational therapist, welcomes us into a classroom next to the sitting area. He tells us everybody's had a long journey, sometimes from as far as the Shetland Islands. The waiting list to get into pain management services can be three years. Everybody moans at Input, the nickname for pain management services. I hear them wince, describing burning legs and scalding hot lava in their backs, stabbing, tingling, stinging, shooting, wrenching, intractable, relentless, persistent, perpetual, chronic pain. No one slept last night. Our hospital flats in Gasset House face St Thomas's ambulance station. While we strained for sleep in the early hours, we heard sirens ululate towards real tragedies measured in heart rates, blood cell counts and visceral wounds. Moaning passes for a vital sign at input. In here, Big Ben's bongs are measured instead. Was Big Ben really going off every 15 minutes last night? Says patient one next morning. How the fuck am I going to get any sleep here for a month? Replies patient two. I don't care. I've existed on three hours of broken sleep a night for years. In the dark silence, I lay awake dreading the cries of a little girl I cannot look after. An army of friends and family change her nappies, feed her, open medicine bottles, mop up child vomit and do up the buttons, click the five-point harnesses. 
when my friends push the buggy, they're mistaken for Eve's mum, while I shadow behind. Yawning after a day at work, my husband cooks, feeds the baby, me, and, when there's time, washes my hair, so there can be no moaning at home. Warren the physio films us walking, climbing the stairs of the fire escape, or standing and sitting in the corridors of input. For some, especially those in wheelchairs, this is impossible. Then we are back in the sitting room, filling in questionnaires, which ask how much we sleep, work or play. My clawed hands can't write. I discover later that these strange questions are the only way to establish our levels of pain. One scientific paper discusses how questionnaires reveal pain intensity, illustrated with a picture of a filing cabinet, with a couple of drawers removed, revealing coils of barbed wire inside. Paperwork. A proxy for pain measurement. Because there is no device, like a thermometer or blood pressure cuff, able to measure pain. None of us register a blip on a screen. Not the sparks from electric shocks, red-hot pokers that score down the arms, or diamond-sharp shards pricking the legs. None of this shows up on MRI, ultrasound, nerve conduction tests, or CT scans. <laughs> Anyone would think it was all in our heads. Day two at input. There comes the shocker. We're waiting for the next session. Dr Katari petite in a white coat with long black hair and matter-of-fact lips, walks past us and stands at the whiteboard. She's a pain consultant, a rare and endangered species among doctors. There's no smile. I don't remember her precise words. I couldn't write them down anyway. But I think there are gasps. None of us is getting better. I've found copies of the notes Natalie made for me on Dr. Katari's session at the time. Underneath the title, The Meaning of Pain, she's drawn a big spider labelled the spinal cord, where the legs on the left represent the sensations we gather at the edges of our bodies. Touch, smell, hot and cold, pressure and pain. And just one leg on the right is titled The Brain. The legs are nerves, sending signals in warning pulses through junctions of ganglions to the spinal cord and up to the brain which interprets the signal. Slice a finger open and pulses are sent up through one of the legs of the spider to the spinal cord and onto the brain. It's the perfect warning signal. This is acute pain, a sign of damage. But in chronic pain, the complex system breaks and the network of nerves malfunction firing off uncontrollably, spamming the brain with a slew of misinterpreted warnings. Some are amplified. Often, there are crossed wires. That's why Natalie feels the slightest pressure as intense pain. Others feel intense smells as pain. Nicola can feel light as pain. For me, cold is pain. It takes around three months for most things to heal in the body. Pain after that is considered to be chronic. So, any pain after that is a sign that something's gone wrong with the system, says Dr Kotari. The pain is real, but it's not a sign of muscle damage. For 12 years I was told that my muscles, strained to breaking from typing and writing to hourly deadlines, could be fixed. 
If only I exercised them enough, I'd be able to hold my daughter's hands, cook a meal, hold a book, or even draw again without pain. It turns out they healed years ago. I was relieved. I had not failed to make myself better. The pain is not my fault. There is no damage, she repeats. It's pointless pain. One day, after we finish our sessions, me and Kim take a walk to Lower Marsh, a smart market street behind Waterloo Station. I'm grateful for the open air. There are no heavy fire doors to pull open, handrails to hold, or keypads to punch. We walk unnoticed through a mass of people. We walk with patience myopia. I notice travellers blithely rolling suitcases to the station and the gainfully employed commuting home. In the hospital playground, I watch a mum hoist her son onto a climbing frame. I envy the ease with which they enjoy the fresh air and exercise. The envy's repeated every time I'm here, although I know Evelina Children's Hospital is nearby and unimaginable tragedies bring children to this hospital playground. Meanwhile, Kim, who is trying a walk without her stick, is negotiating a fast-moving world, slowly. She notices jockeying, impatient commuters, and at crossings, the green man who flashes for an impossibly short amount of time. We're comparing just how matted hair can get when your arms can't wash it, when we are hit by a competition of Thai and Cuban and Malaysian cooking smells from the stalls that line the curved road of Lower Marsh. Kim looks wistfully at the stalls and tells me she stopped hers, selling vintage craft and clothing, because setting it up each day became excruciating. We pop into a second-hand shop so she can show me the kinds of clothes she'd have picked to sell on her stall. Inside, she sees the entrepreneur she has ceased to be. I see clothes I can't take off the hangers. In the window of Café Scooter is a Vespa. We head inside to drink espressos, sitting in trendy chairs like spikes. Like sitting in the café and drinking coffee is the most normal thing in the world. I'm in heaven. It's a year later, and I'm staring down at fifty Polaroid-like cards spread out on a table. On one is a photograph of a man clasping his head, made of smooth stone, between his hands. On another, bright sparks spew out of a live red wire. Another shows a shadow of a woman's head between two rotten pieces of bread. Something that should be wholesome is disintegrating. The shadow is concealment, absence of light and visibility. Maybe that makes it the perfect metaphor for pain, says Deborah Padfield, an artist who, with pain patients from St Thomas's, created the images. She's high-pitched, yet deadly serious. On a hot day in July, I've come to the deserted UCL campus to attend a conference on chronic pain. I'm nervous. I'm going back to work, science writing for the first time in five years. I want to understand a condition I didn't really know I had until input. Illness as a metaphor runs deep at the conference, amongst poets and artists, all with chronic pain, who present their work in the lecture theatre. But their poems and presentations are interspersed with shrieks and winces from the audience. I almost leave. Moans and metaphors irritate me because they don't solve anything. But then, a small woman called Anne Eastman begins to speak about a condition called trigeminal neuralgia, otherwise known as burning mouth syndrome. 
there is a very real myth that despair is the cause of your horrendous pain. Your GP or local hospital may think you're a hypochondriac, she says. But you know the savage attacks are unyielding, like a sledgehammer is waiting to slash into your head with episodic, violent electrical shocks. Her voice is calm when she explains how the pain was so bad she couldn't eat, sleep or even swallow medication anymore. I now understand why trigeminal neuralgia is sometimes nicknamed the suicide disease. And that's why so many patients are frozen, like me. The terror of extreme pain is unbearable, that avoiding pain becomes the only goal in life. It's a simple logic. Avoid movement to avoid pain. But avoiding movement means avoiding life, and the pain will return, regardless. It always returns, but nobody knows when. It could be three days, three weeks, or months, says Anne. She explains why she's brought paintings with her. There's one picture of a pathway to nowhere, lined with trees with upturned claws. The English language is rich, but the average patient is unable to describe their pain, always assuming that the average clinician is willing to listen. Metaphors can be obscure and misinterpreted, she says. Visual art can transcend language. It can help people to express their suffering. Perhaps another function of art, then, is to make others believe the pain is real. I find Anne's doctor after the lecture and ask her. Professor Zakshevska is a rod of steel in tweed. She says she lays out the cards and asks patients like Anne how their pain feels. The images help her diagnose their condition. Some people will come up with some wonderful metaphors. Others just haven't got that language, she explains. So, a heavy type of pain is more likely to be muscular, and a sharp electric shock pain is more likely to be neuropathic pain when the nerve is cut or severed. It gives me some idea. We are talking amongst laughter in the lecture theatre when Professor Zakshevska says people use cards to talk about the impact of pain. Rather than using words like stabbing, burning or aching, they talk about impact, like punishing, sickening, tiring, terrifying. They speak about the attacks on the self. Life crumbles around you because you cannot do anything, she explains, her staunch grey bob wobbling. It's so strong, it grabs your attention. It interferes with your goals and where you want to go. It alters your identity. It changes you, she says. I think back to when my arms gave up. My baby was just five weeks old. It was barely enough time to create the new identity of becoming a mum. I often think pain is a tiny glimpse of getting old. I ask her why it's so important to convey suffering if there is no cure. The amount of disbelief, she says, simply. We've been talking for ages and my arm is wailing from holding the dictaphone. But I don't want to stop the interview. Especially because the room is now silent as she tells me about a neurosurgeon who told his patient to go home because he'd found nothing wrong in any of the tests. The patient tried to hang himself. Just think about a throwaway statement from the surgeon, she whispers. Luckily his wife found him just in time. He spent four months in a psychiatric hospital. Non-pain specialists often don't get chronic pain, 
because they can't prove it's there, says Professor Zakshevska. There's no way to image nerves where the damage is. Pain is transmitted by the nerves and we can't see them. It's the invisibility of it. Being able to visualise pain would make a difference, she says. I read later that trainee vets get more hours of training on pain than junior doctors. At input, it's not only specialist pain consultants, physios and psychologists that see us. Erin, the pain nurse. And her job, perversely, is to get everybody off painkillers. Once upon a time, we used to have people on the course who would sit there in a session like this and lick fentanyl lollipops, she says. Fentanyl is a synthesised version of morphine, but a hundred times stronger. It's 50 times more potent than heroin. The lollipops were originally designed for people dying of cancer to take the edge off the worst terminal pain. Now we're tackling the fentanyl patches, she says. I hear of people operating on 250 milligrams a day. I watch Erin as she speaks. She's made up beautifully. Hair in a chignon with a woollen dress and buttons up the back. I'm not sure if what she's wearing is on trend or even if that's the right phrase. But I know it looks unfamiliar. So do the phones people are using. We've been living indoors, my little girl and me, for four years. Going out only when people can take us. Fashions, trends, technology have moved on. I've stepped out of a time machine, a little way into the future. It's week three at Input, and Erin has taken us through the drugs that are routinely prescribed by GPs and other doctors, sometimes at the same time. Tranquilizers like temazepam and diazepam. Anti-epileptics, like gabapentin and pregabalin. Anticonvulsants opioids, tricyclics. Then she tells us exactly what each one does, good and bad. In Natalie's notes, she's written suicidal, confusion, drowsiness, zombie, reduced memory, concentration, euphoric. Erin says painkillers made from opioids, like morphine and fentanyl, are extremely addictive and work in only three in ten people. Yet they are prescribed widely and for years at a time. A few nods from the room. Oxycontin is a really addictive opioid. It's causing overdoses across America, Canada and Australia, she says. Chronic pain is global. Erin asks us if we even know which pills work and which don't. There are lots of shrugs. Lying there listening to the nighttime sirens at St Thomas's, I'd assumed nobody dies from chronic pain. I'm wrong. They are as likely to be a middle-class Westchester lady as a Kentucky coal miner, or middle-aged British builder, or even Prince. It's the discovery that I'm not alone that inspires me to begin collecting pain stories. One woman lost both her ovaries and Achilles' heel because doctors thought surgery would remove the pain. It didn't. It just moved. I met a cancer survivor with nerves on the sole of her feet scorched by chemotherapy drugs. She can walk no more than a few hundred metres. I listen in on doctors, too. A head pain specialist throws around symptoms that sound more like drug-induced fun than painful. Hallucinations, auras, Alice in Wonderland syndrome. Cluster headaches are the worst pain known to man, he says. If patients were animals, we'd euthanise them, he says. It's horrific. 
One pain consultant spends her time weaning chronic pain addicts off opioids. She asks why GPs are still prescribing opioids and why they still believe they help with chronic pain. I discover chronic pain is hidden in so many other conditions. Shingles, diabetes and arthritis, endometriosis, sickle cell disease, perhaps even multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's. It costs 200 billion euros in Europe and $150 billion in the USA a year, what with people constantly going to the doctors, missing work, or being stuck on opioids for years at a time. And around 20 million people in the US, 8 million in the UK, have the kind of pain that stops them completely. But these are the vaguest of estimates. There are so many of us, but no one is really counting. The staff at Input are, in effect, painkillers. For four weeks they teach us what it is we have. They get us off the painkillers that do not work. They get us to stop avoiding the things that cause pain. They teach us how to dial down the pain. But first, they must break down our terror and defiance. Because we've tried everything already, and it didn't work. It really hurt. We lost days, weeks, years. Warren, the physio, waits for the ones who snap at him for trying to get their bodies, rigid from years of sofa surfing, to move on to a yoga mat. Kim says straight out, Nope. Last time I lay on the floor, that was it for six months. Joe, the occupational therapist, asks what we would love to be able to do and then suggests we try it. Natalie looks at the bike sitting in the corner of the room and laughs incredulously. Go on a tube? Fuck off, says Kim, not looking at Joe. The tube is a no-go area. The doors will close by the time she's even managed to get up off her seat. Travelling and work again. I want to take Eve to the park, I say. I'd like to live again. I travelled through sub-Saharan Africa with a rucksack, a tent and a cooking pot on my back. Now I borrow Natalie's tiny handbag and put the strap over my shoulder. Five minutes later, pain gathers there, where the strap is, like a red-hot poker stabbing at my rotocuff muscles. I throw the bag on the floor. At UCL, Professor Zakshevska tells me knowledge on pain has improved in recent years. When I was in medical school... We thought you could prick premature babies hundreds of times without anaesthetic and it made no difference, she says. Scientists now realise pain in early life, as well as abuse, can trigger a rewiring of the nervous system, making it more prone to chronic pain. We now realise that experience has a huge impact on people in the future. They feel more pain, she says. We didn't know that before. No one understands why chronic pain develops. But scientists are finding the kinks in the complex circuitry to try and understand why one in every six adults will develop chronic pain after an operation, rising to one in every three after a mastectomy, and why the others do not. Theirs is a language of dystopian genes, action potentials and synapses. They use chilies to cause pain, then stand back and observe one branch of scientists has even developed new scans that show the brain lit up when patients are in pain. Just like that game, Operation. Pain is becoming visible. Later, I find a picture of a spine attached to a brain in a science magazine, 
and trace my finger along the pain pathways that lead up to the brain and back again. Now I understand more, I know there's a receptionist in there that lets some messages pass to and from the brain. It stops some messages, the kind of information the brain really doesn't need to be bothered by, the sensation of glasses resting on your nose or shoes on your feet. The receptionist's job is to dampen down those unimportant inputs so they become imperceptible, invisible. The receptionist is the volume button on pain. But what if the receptionist has a breakdown? What if the receptionist lets every message through, every touch, every smell? What if the receptionist sees messages coming back from the brain and panics and tells the rest of the body, emergency, emergency? What if the receptionist bases decisions on whether to turn the volume up or down on past memories and emotions? The last time Kim lay on the floor, that time I changed Eve after she vomited. The throbbing was so bad I didn't sleep for three months. The memories, the anxiety, they all feed the manic receptionist and the pain is turned up, amplified. Pain is a metric of distress. Professor Zakshevska tells me pain management courses seem to be one of the few interventions proven to dial down the pain. Scientific papers are photocopied and plastered all over the walls of input, along with the paintings, carvings and textiles created by previous patients brought back to life. We don't need high-tech equipment, she says. But there are not enough pain management centres. Why do I have patients coming all the way from Lancashire? I get them from around the whole country. We return for a follow-up session at Input nine months later. Kim struts in, stickless, with a wide-brimmed vintage hat slanted over one eye. Natalie has lost the stick. I play basketball with Liz in heels. Soon, when we're sitting outside in the Indian summer sunshine, Joe asks us what has changed. The pain is worse than ever, we complain, then laugh. Because we've all been reborn into the outside world. Kim's lost two stone and is thinking of starting an online business. Nicola says she no longer lies in bed managing her family remotely by phone. Natalie has bought a bicycle. She threatens to kickbox her latest useless boyfriend. Four years after my daughter was born, the mum in me emerges. I still can't pick her up, but when I crouch down, she clambers over me to reach the swing in the playground. And then, for the first time since she was born, I push her high into the air. We watch our long summer shadows on the ground. And we laugh. That was The Invisibles, written by Tatum Anderson, read by Miranda Harrison, and produced by Martin Nathan. Come back in two weeks' time for the final Waterloo Festival podcast. After that, we'll be returning to our usual format, one story a month. Stay safe and well. Goodbye.